Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. For today's program, we'll be continuing with our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. So let's begin by turning in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. If you're a parent, well, you named your child. In a great part of the world today, we typically name our children what we do for about three different reasons, I think. I mean, the first reason is that the name is found in our extended family. A second reason might be is that we simply like the sound of the name. And a third reason is because we associate the name with someone famous. But we don't typically name our children to describe them or to define them. I mean, after all, at least so we think, they haven't done anything yet, so so how can we describe them or define them yet? And it's because of this that we tend not to place a great deal of significance in a name. It is for us simply a label that identifies an individual. After all, what's in a name? So names tend to have very little significance to us. It was in William Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet that Juliet argues that even though Romeo comes from the house of Montague, that it doesn't matter. In her words, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. So whatever we call something, it's of no consequence. It's simply a word. It is character and not the words we use to define them that makes the difference. At least that's how we think. And of course, in some ways that's true, but in other ways, well, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, after all, one of the great struggles in our day has everything to do with how we name things. So for instance, I'm not the only one that has noticed that those who favor allowing unborn children to be killed are called pro-choice and not pro-death of unwanted children. And prostitutes are renamed sex trade workers. See, I don't want to belabor the point, but it turns out that what we call the rose is a matter of considerable debate. So we can see that names and what we name things really does matter a great deal. Now, let's get back to the names that we give people. We've noticed that for most people, the name they bear has no deep significance at all. But in the Bible, a name is a revelation of who a person is and about their character and the way in which they walk and live and about who they truly are. So for that reason, one would want to pay a great deal of attention to the names. Now, Genesis 17, 1-2 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, another way of saying that is to add the word because before the sentence. Because my name is God Almighty, you should walk in a blameless fashion before me and so that I would fulfill my covenant. And so somehow connected to the name is the way in which Abram was supposed to live. See, and for this reason, I've decided to dedicate one broadcast to the name of God. We notice that there are numerous times in the Bible in which God simply makes reference to the importance of his name. The fourth command, found in Exodus 20, verse 7, simply says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, unfortunately, many only understand this command in very narrow terms. For them, it simply means that you shouldn't use the name in profanity. Now, of course, we must not use the name in profanity, but the command goes far beyond that. 
We must not use the name of God in any manner that's not related to worship and to reverence or honoring the name. Any other use of the name is strictly forbidden. So, for instance, it has become quite popular in our day when people use the name as an expression or using the name to make a joke or even using the name in a casual manner. All that is forbidden. The name itself is the cause of veneration and reverence and awe. Leviticus 22, verse 32, we read, And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. See, once we understand that using the name with reverence is a part of our sanctification, we begin to see how important the name is. And so when Abram first entered into Canaan, Genesis 12, verse 8 says, From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for the name of the Lord, of course, is the word Yahweh, a name which many Jews today simply will not express, lest they, they desecrate the name. They, they simply substitute the word Lord for Yahweh. But the name has a meaning, and the meaning of Yahweh simply means to exist or to be. As God would later say to Moses, I am that I am. I am the God who exists. That's why the name Yahweh is said. That can be understood either that unlike the idols of the day who are but wood and stone, this God actually existed, or it could also mean that God exists by nature. That is, he is self-existent in that his existence doesn't depend upon anything outside of himself. Now, in order to understand that, consider the fact that everything else that exists depends upon something outside of itself for its existence. And so, for instance, you and I exist because of our parents who existed because of their parents who ultimately existed because of God. But God exists independent of all things. He is self-existent in his nature. Yahweh, the God who is. But the God who is would reveal himself in a series of other names. See, five of those names begin with the prefix El. In Hebrew, El simply means God. Genesis 14, after Abram has defeated the four kings from the east and rescued his nephew Lot, we saw that he was greeted by the king of Jerusalem, a man named Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, verse 18, we are told that Melchizedek knew the name of God as El Elyon, or God Most High. Now, that name must have been revealed to Melchizedek. He didn't come upon it on his own. The one God who exists declared his name to Melchizedek, El Elyon. That's the name by which he was called. Now, for Abram, who had just won a battle over four kings, that that was really significant. First, that God is greater in strength than the four kings. Well, that seemed obvious. Abram knew that he had won a victory over those four kings by the help of the God who exists. And there he learns that his name is God Most High. God is greater than all things. Now, it might be that in the next chapter, that is in Genesis 18, that's why Abram calls God Shaphat Eretz, that is, the judge of all the earth. God is higher than all other things, then it must be that every single culture, no matter what its sexual norms are, are going to answer to him. He simply is higher than all things. He is El Elyon. Now, let's move forward. In Genesis 21, the chapter in our Bible that describes the birth of Isaac, 
After so many years, and also after Abraham was able to seal a treaty with the Philistines in the land, ensuring that Isaac's heritage would remain in the land, we read in verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh. And then he calls the God who exists El Olam, or the everlasting or the eternal God. The God who exists is not only the most important of all things, He is eternally that way, El Olam. Now, from that has come the doctrine of the changeless nature of God. Not only does he exist by necessity, by necessity there is no shadow of variation or change in him. He forever remains as he has always been. How do you imagine that for a moment, that what it would be like if God changed? If he could change, we would have to assume it would either be for the better or for the worse. If he changed for the worse, well, that would mean he would be like us. You know, we're born, we grow old, our bodies slowly start to break down, and then we die. If God changed for the worse, we might assume that the perfections of God are breaking down. In that case, tomorrow, he would no longer be the righteous God. All of his glory would be in decay. And that would mean that whatever God had promised us today would never be secure in the future. But what if God changed for the better? Well, that would mean that whatever he did and whatever he was could always be improved upon. And therefore, the present version of God is not El Elyon, that is, the Most High God. But since his name is El Olam, the everlasting God, then nothing can be subtracted or added to him. And therefore, since he is El Olam, the eternal or everlasting God, then it only follows that whatever God promises, that he also fulfills. And for that reason, after Isaac is born, Abraham calls the God who exists El Olam. After all, that's all he has ever known of God the eternal, the unchanging God who speaks his word and then fulfills all that he has promised. Nothing ever changes in this one God. And that, my dear brother and sister, is our hope. You've heard the expression, you never know what someone is going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I'm amazed and moved at the number of incredible testimonies we receive from people confronting tragedy. Recently, a close friend lost his brother-in-law in a motorcycle accident and his sister was left critically injured. A neighbor shared the news of their daughter, married and mother of two, diagnosed with brain cancer. The tragedies of life arise without warning, often ending with profound loss and grief. What a blessing that so many would choose to share their stories with us. It really highlights the powerful, hope-renewing message found in the Bible. The daily teaching of the Bible is a privilege of this ministry. Please continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by sending that all-important gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online with your donation at backtothebible.ca. In Genesis 17, Abram is about to encounter another name for God. Genesis 17 verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Now, the name of God, El Shaddai, was going to come up several more times in the book of Genesis. 
In Genesis 28, when Isaac, the son of Abraham, sent his own son Jacob to go to Padan Aram to find a wife there and so fulfill the promised blessing of Abraham, Isaac says to Jacob, and I'm reading Genesis 28, verse 3, may El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Let's go forward to Genesis 35. Jacob is coming back to the land of Canaan, and he's accompanied by his wives and children. Verses 9 to 11 tell us what transpired. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So please notice here that the name El Shaddai is again being used when Abraham's descendants are being promised the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's descendants, like the stars of the heaven, it's related to the name of God, El Shaddai. So the next time the name El Shaddai is used in the book of Genesis relates to Jacob. Now he's an old man. As far as he knows and believes, his son Joseph is dead, and an unknown ruler in Egypt has taken his son Simeon as his captive and now demands another son Benjamin as his captive as well. But he has no choice because, well, they're all starving, and so he will allow Benjamin to go to this seemingly ruthless ruler in Egypt. And as he releases Benjamin on the journey to Egypt, Jacob says, and I'm reading Genesis 43, verse 14, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And that now becomes Jacob's only hope. It would seem that his family is being decimated. He places his hope in the name of God that his family has known and the promise that has been made. May El Shaddai intervene. The next use of the name is found in Genesis 48, verse 3. Jacob now has his entire family restored to him, including Joseph. But there's so much catching up to do with Joseph and and the blessing of Joseph's children, explaining to those boys their place in the Abrahamic covenant. And so how to begin? Listen to Jacob's own words. He says, and Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples. And so we can see that with each use of this name for God, the same promise is being recalled, that God would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and increase the descendants of Abraham until they become too many to number. And with that, the earth receives the promise of a blessing. And finally, in Genesis 49, verse 25, it records the last use of that name in Genesis. Jacob, now dying, offers up a blessing on his 12 sons. To Joseph, he promises that Shaddai will bless you. Indeed, in one sense, we can see that in the book of Genesis, as it progresses, it is this name for God, El Shaddai, that becomes the most often used name for God. In Genesis, El Shaddai is the prominent name of God. So much so that in Exodus 6, verses 2 to 3, we read of God's revelation to Moses, and there it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, as an aside, that statement sometimes causes a great deal of confusion in Bible readers. 
For it is clear that if we go back to Genesis 15, verse 7, that God does indeed reveal himself to Abraham as Yahweh. And in Genesis 38, verse 13, he also reveals himself that same way to Jacob. The patriarchs were very aware of that name for God. Furthermore, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we have there Eve with her giving birth to her first son, and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh, Eve's words, that is, with the help of the God who is. And so it can rightfully be said that the name Yahweh is indeed the oldest name for God, as old as language itself. It's the first and foremost of all the ancient names of God. And that brings us back to Exodus 6 and the strange sentence that Abraham and his family did not know God as Yahweh, but rather as El Shaddai. Now, it is true that they would not have called God Yahweh. They would have called him El Shaddai. That's how God taught them to refer to him. But in Exodus 6, something new happens. The introduction of the name Yahweh is related to God setting Israel free from Egyptian slavery. In Exodus, the principal use of the name Yahweh relates to redemption, freedom from bondage. And in the New Testament, the theme from Exodus is used as Christ announces that he is the Passover lamb and the very thing that the Egyptian Passover was looking forward to. In fact, the New Testament often extends the illustration of the Passover, explaining that our salvation comes in those terms. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so, from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul likens the Red Sea crossing to Christian baptism and the manna to the Lord's table. He's making the point that all of the elements in the Exodus story is ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Jesus and the salvation of sinners from slavery to the evil one. And by the way, calling Jesus Lord is calling him Yahweh, the name of the only God who exists, the God who saves. And so we can see that in the first testament, the book of Genesis, the name El Shaddai is primarily used as the way in which God indicates that he will fulfill his promise to bring a blessing to the world. And in Exodus, the name Yahweh is primarily used as the way in which God saves his people. So El Shaddai relates to the promise and Yahweh relates to salvation. See, and this aspect of the full meaning of the name Yahweh is something that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not yet fully understand. Yeah, they knew that they were being pronounced righteous by faith, but they didn't understand the depth of sin or of God's righteous laws. See, they didn't realize yet how much they needed Yahweh to save them from their sins. But they did know that the God they followed was known as El Shaddai. And that brings us back to the meaning of that name for God. How did Abraham understand it when God came to him and announced his name, the name El Shaddai? And as I've said before, a name isn't just a name. And a God by any other name is not sufficient. There is something about this name that is foundational to our understanding of God. But what does the name actually mean? Put simply, the name means God Almighty. And if I might, it is this name for God that we fight to preserve today. 
When someone uses the name God Almighty as an expression or as an expletive, we are horrified at this desecration of the sacred name. We as believers must never do that. But let's get back to the meaning. What's intended by the name El Shaddai? Arthur Pink, I think, has stated it better than I ever could, so I simply quote him here. He said, The revelation which God made of himself was well suited to the occasion. This was the first time that he revealed himself as the Almighty. None but this one who possessed all power could meet Abram's need at this time. Ninety-nine years of age, his body dead, Sarah barren, and long past the age of childbearing, how could they have hope to have a son? But with God, all things are possible. And why? Because he is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, the God of power. And that, I think, gets at it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew that El Shaddai had promised them that through them, the whole earth would be blessed and their descendants, the people of faith, would be more than could be counted. And how did they know that was true? Because his name is El Shaddai. We need to be introduced again to that sacred name. For all God's people today who still await our our hope, our promises of a celestial city, the promises of life after death, the the promise of the end of all sorrow and sickness and sin, and the, the promises that the flesh will never again militate against God. And as we face these overwhelming promises of what is to come, we contemplate who it is that has made those promises to us. His name is El Shaddai. What more needs to be said? We can be at peace. All is well. Our God is El Shaddai. John, I know this is important to you as it is to me, but we seem to speak the name of God very casually in our culture today. I think even the names we say of God or the crosses that we wear, but it really ought to be used with much more reverence, doesn't it? Oh, Ben, that's so right. And and thank you for bringing that up because I think all of God's people need to, to hear this part of it. Never use the name of God in a joke. I mean, it's just always inappropriate, always. God's name is not to be used in a casual way. Never use it to emphasize a point. You only use God's name when you're studying theology, when you're talking about sacredness, or when you're bowing your head in worship. I mean, outside of those contexts, we never speak the name. And so this, this ought to be, you know, a part of basic Christian training, basic Christian vocabulary. This is a part of who we are. And we, we need to tell that to our children. We need to tell that to new disciples. Uh, we need to help people to understand this is basic Christian conduct. This is how we approach the name of our God. He is the El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Laugh-Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise is just around the corner. If making time to relax, laugh, be spiritually refreshed, and enjoy incredible worship, music, and fellowship is something you think might hit the mark this winter, then we invite you to join Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway and special worship and musical guest Rika for this inspirational vacation and journey. Enjoy the Caribbean as we visit Labadee, Jamaica, and Cozumel. Enjoy the sun and the beaches while sailing one of Royal Caribbean's newest and largest ships, the Oasis of the Seas. But most important, spend time enjoying friends and family. 
laughter and encouragement, hear messages and stories of hope and joy as we gather together. So make a point of planning to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019. For more information, check out laughagain.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.